Good morning. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 6, as we continue to journey through the book of Exodus. Uh, so a few weeks ago, I was on my phone and I saw a video uh, with a kind of a clickbaity, ty- uh, clickbaity type title pop across the screen. And I was like, I have got to watch this. And the title of the video was some form of, uh, this is why you need subtitles to watch movies and television nowadays. And I went, what? I thought it was just me. I thought my children are just blowing up my eardrums that I can't hear anymore. That it's not a unique problem to me that people need subtitles. So I was like, yes, I will give you 10 minutes of my time. I'd love to know why I need subtitles. And I'm not going to get into all the nerdy details because there's multiple reasons, but I'll give you a couple. One of them is, is because back in the day, uh, there used to be one mic above uh, each scene. So they have a mic above that scene, and those actors uh, were trained uh, to, very be, to be articulate, to project their voice at that mic so they, all these words could be caught. And then nowadays, because there's mics everywhere, they can put them on their person, they can put them in all parts of the scene uh, that actors have gotten lazier. And they've started to slur and mumble their words together, which for someone like me, who if you've ever been in an informal conversation with me, who slurred my words, it's like, oh, I'm not alone. Even the pros do it. Uh, but then I kept watching, and I thought that there was uh, uh, something that I found to be very helpful, is that they shoot movies and television primarily for a surround sound experience. Okay? So like they, they, they shoot it for in the theaters, to have all the speakers from front to back and all around. And at home, if you have like an expensive Sonos system, that's what it's made for. And what they do is they shoot it for that type of quality, and then they start to reduce it down to the lowest kind of common uh, uh, listening experience. And one of the more popular listening experiences is what I do. I have a flat screen TV that is thin and has one tiny speaker on the back, and that shoots sound back at the wall and comes back to me. And by the time that... I'm listening, like there's moments where I'm watching this, a show or a movie, and I'm like, I know that this is important. I can tell by the setup that this is a very important scene, but I can't hear any of the words, so I have to rewind, put subtitles on, and be ah, oh, there it is. To catch some of the most important, pivotal parts of the story, you need the full surround sound experience. And that is a little bit of where we're at in Exodus today. That is our passage. We're going to look at what is one of the most pivotal and important and foundational passages in the Old Testament. This passage clearly outlines who the people of God are supposed to be. Who God's people are supposed to be in order to hear it clearly. There are these major descriptions that are given for the people of God. And each of those is like a different speaker. The front, the back, and the sides. You need all of them to help hear who we are supposed to be now as the church. So we're going to walk through this together. Let me pray for us. Uh, And then we will see what God has to say to us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us be present this morning. I I pray that you would help us listen, that we receive your word with glad and generous hearts, that we would be willing to be uh, molded and shaped into your image, whether that's through um, correction, whether that calls us to repentance, whether that calls, calls us to just simply delighting in you. I pray that you would help that happen this morning and you'd work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So, 
uh, most of us aren't well-versed in Jewish calendars, when it says on the third new moon, this is about seven weeks, okay? And a lot has happened in the last seven weeks when they left Egypt. We've seen the the great Red Sea crossing and everything that went into that with God uh, destroying the enemies of Israel and saving his people. We've watched as they've been in the wilderness, the highs and the lows. We've seen um, them suffering with starving and, and thirsting. We've seen God provide through manna, through quail, through water from the rock. They have fought a war with the Amalekites. And then last week we saw Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, visit. There's a lot that's happened in seven weeks. But now, finally, we're at a big shift in Exodus. They are out. They're, they have arrived, they're arriving at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses and the people are going to receive the Ten Commandments. It's where they're going to receive the law. So in verse 2, when it says, They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, the mountain being Mount Sinai, while Moses went up to God. So they get to the mountain. The people of God encamp below it. Moses goes up to meet with God. And this is what happens. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So Moses, the prophet, is going to tell the people this. Y'all remember what I did to the Egyptians, right? The very people that enslaved you for centuries, who brutalized you. You remember what I did to them and what I did for you. Because you were helpless in your state. You were slaves. You had no hope of saving and redeeming and freeing yourselves. But he used the language of, I bore you on eagles' wings. Just You were helpless and hopeless, and I swooped in like an eagle and picked you up and carried you to myself. This is picturesque of uh, uh, Return of the King, uh, the final book, final movie of Lord of the Rings, when Sam and Frodo have completed their journey. The the ring has been destroyed, and now Mordor is going up in flames, and there's lava all around them, and they are exhausted, and they're starving, and they've got nothing left in them. They're completely hopeless, about to die. And then all of a sudden, eagles come in and scoop them up and carry them to safety. That's us. That's the Israelites. That's our story hopeless and helpless on our own, but God in his rich mercy and his love for us, redeeming us, scooping us up. And it says, like an eagle, he bore us on his wings to himself. It is this save us away from destruction. He brings us to himself that we might live with him and delight in him. That's what he's trying to help the people of God see that the God who saved you is now about to teach you what it means to be my people. So what he's telling Moses and what the people of God need to hear out the gate is grace. I saved you because of my great love, because of my power over the Egyptians. I redeemed you. And now you're going to learn as my people what it means to be the people of God. And these next two verses are foundational for that. So verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Let me pause there for a moment. 
He says, since I'm the God that is for you, that's redeemed you, I want you to listen to what I have to say. My words, that's going to be the law that he's getting ready to deliver. Obey my voice. But he says, keep my covenant. Now, amongst Bible nerds, which is a tribe that I've got a foot in, they really love to debate this word covenant. What does he mean? Because there's two possible options for what he means by covenant. So the first option is the covenant that God made with Abraham in the book of Genesis. This will be the, the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the covenant where God chooses Abraham. There's nothing special about Abraham, but God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Your descendants are going to be the means by which I bless the nations. So you'll see the different commentaries that go. This is the Abrahamic covenant. You look at the language and how it compares some of the covenant language that was earlier in Exodus and goes back to Abraham and Genesis. And it's like, oh, this is compelling arguments. But on the other side, they're like, no, no, no. This is the covenant with Moses. What's called the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that we're entering into right now that we're seeing in verse 19, 20 and following. This is the covenant of Moses, the law where the language that flows out of this is obeying the Lord. And you listen to both of their arguments. It's like, oh, that's, that's compelling. Oh, that's compelling. But as I've looked at the text this week, what's become clear is that this passage is actually a bridge between those two covenants. That it's, it's one plan the whole time and two promises, two uh, covenants that God has made with his people And this really brings them together. You have the one of God's grace that Abraham chose and trusted God in faith. And you have the outworking of that in the Mosaic Covenant, which is obedience. It's trusting God at his word that it is good and following him. But this kind of holds both of those together with faith and following. That's what's happening. Faith and following are bound up in when it says, keep my covenant. So... Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, here it is, here's the big descriptions, okay, the big surround sound descriptions of who we're called to be as the people of God. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, second description, and a holy nation, and that's the third. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. This is what it means to be the people of God. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in that. Before we get there, I want to help tie this whole story together for us. Because what's happening here is profound. It's beautiful. So if you go back to the covenant with Abraham, and specifically when God is is reinforcing it, when uh, he calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So they're on the mountain, and then he's about to sacrifice his son, but then God intervenes and says, No, I've seen your faith, Abraham. And then what follows that is the reinforcing of this covenant in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. It says, I will surely, this is God speaking, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall, hear this, all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay? 
That's the promise that he made with Abraham, that I'm going to bless you with a great nation, and through your people I will bless the nations. And then you get to our passage today, which is hundreds of years later, when one of Abraham's descendants, Moses, is on the mount, and God tells him, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, same language, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession amongst all peoples. For all the earth is mine, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we're going to get more into that, on that, that language of what's happening there. But what the people of God are called to be is a kingdom of priests to the surrounding nations. And this gets reinforced by the book of Isaiah in chapter 49 when it says, uh, God's speaking. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And what you see as you're pulling this thread from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament is that God chose a people that they might be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a light to the surrounding nations. And then he brings them into his promised land, into his presence And if you just look at the geography of where he chose that Israel, geographically, is this land bridge between two continents, between all these different surrounding nations, all these different surrounding nations that did not know God, that did not love God, that did not follow him, they did abominable practices like sacrificing their children to foreign idols. They don't know God, but this people, you're going to know me. You're going to be like me, and you're going to be a light to these surrounding nations. But when you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see a rejection of that calling. They don't want to be a treasure possession. They don't want to be a kingdom of priests. They don't want to be a holy nation. They don't want God, and they reject him over and over and over again. They love the gods of the other nations. They fall in love with their practices, all the way to sacrificing their own children to foreign gods. They failed. They were not the light to the nations. But that promise still remains. The promise to Abraham still remains. The promise to Moses, through Moses, to his people, still remains. And God makes good on his promises despite the failure of his people, and in steps Jesus. And Jesus steps in, and he becomes the light to the nations. That he fulfills the Mosaic Covenant, obeying the law perfectly, and that when he goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the world, and when he rises out of the tomb, he is making a way for the light to the nations to expand And for all the nations to be brought in. And then when you get to after his resurrection, before he ascends, you get to the Great Commission, which happens on a mountain. You see a mountain theme there too. From Abraham to Moses to now Jesus commissioning his church. And what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. You see it? Of all nations. This promise is being pulled through, and it's coming true. Guys, 
that, this is biblical theology. This is it right here. Like this is the sweet reward of reading the scriptures and seeing these. It's not a bunch of disconnected stories that's not all linked together. It's one grand story from Genesis to Revelation the whole way through. And then when you keep pulling that thread, you get towards the end of the Bible and you get to 2 Peter. It's coming alive, you guys. 2 Peter chapter 2. It's going to bring us home. This is God through inspiring Peter speaking to this new, these New Testament churches. Here it is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? It's the same language of Exodus. The same calling that the people of God are about to receive in Exodus, that continues for thousands of years. It doesn't change. If you belong to God, this is it. That you're a royal priest at a kingdom of priests. That you are a people for his own possession, God's treasured possession. That you are a holy nation. Same language. But then you get the purpose, right, for what God's people, and why they're called to be this. And it goes on. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That you are these things as my people so that not only you would know God, but that you would proclaim God to the world who needs him. That you be a light to the nations as God's people bearing the light of Christ, that you proclaim the excellencies, the glory, the goodness, the gospel of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You were once enslaved to sin, but now you've been made free as my people to proclaim the gospel. That's why he continues in 1 Peter. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's outsiders who don't believe. That's the language there. The Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil, speak, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That how you assemble as the people of God and what you look like, how you walk in this faith and the message that you have, that they might see it and they might want to know Christ and they might want to follow him so that when the day of visitation happens, when judgment happens, they might stand joyfully. That's what the people of God have been for thousands of years. That means that in this Exodus passage, we really need to be very familiar with this language of what it means to be when he says, Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. When he goes on to say, My kingdom of priests. When he goes on to say, A holy nation. We need to be very familiar with those, that language. And we need each of those descriptions so that we can have this surround sound experience of hearing who God is calling us to be as the church. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at those descriptions and why they matter. So let's look at that first one. My treasured possession, or as First Peter says, a people for his own possession. Okay? So 
You shall be my treasure possession among the peoples, and a people for his own possession in First Peter. God looks at us and says, you are my treasured possession. Out of everything and everyone that's ever been made, God is the creator of the universe. That means that from the farthest galaxy and all of its stars to the very atoms beneath our feet, that he looks at his people and says, you are my most treasured possession. How wonderful is that? How beautiful is that God loves us that much that he calls us his treasured possession. The, the Israelites, they so needed to hear that. They so needed to hear that for years, for centuries. They were Pharaoh's abused possession. And God says, listen, you are my treasured possession. And the same thing is true of, the, true of us with Christ. That in Christ, we're God's treasured possession. And we need to believe that because the enemy would love to, would love to lie to us and like, let us believe so many other things. That God doesn't love us. That God doesn't care. That you don't matter. I mean, I walk, as, as, one of the things I do is, is I do pastoral counseling in our church, and I walk with people that have this internal narrative of just, I don't matter. No one loves me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. I'm worthless. I'm terrible. I should just end it. I mean, the, 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 the thought patterns that people have, that just this, this reinforcing of the exact opposite of the language of God, that you're his treasure possession. We walk in this negative feedback loop of just, it just continues and it continues and it continues. And God, in the middle of all of it, is just trying to break through and says, don't you see? You're my treasured possession. That you belong to me. That I love you. That I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. I, I, I sent him to give you new life. That what's while this moment in life might be filled with suffering, it is light and momentary compared to the surpassing worth of the glory and the weight of glory that awaits us. That this moment in life, it feels long, but it's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. When you compare that to the vast expanse of eternity that God has secured for us in Christ and all the joy and endless peace and his presence that awaits us. You don't realize how treasured you are, Christian, is what God is trying to help us see. You're unbelievably treasured. You're far more loved and cherished than you could ever possibly imagine or dream. I, I love the language that continues in Exodus of how God views his people. Because here he says, treasured possession. But when you flip to the next chapter in the Ten Commandments, which we're going to spend more time in, in the second commandment he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Talking about idols. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Our God is jealous for us, his treasured possession. How great is that? The God of the universe cares that much about you. Like if, I, if, my, if one of my children came to me and said, Father, well, Daddy, they don't use the language, Daddy, <laughs> I've been playing with some kids down the street, and that family is awesome. Dad, they have all kinds of toys. 
Like their parents make a lot more money than you do. They've got all the things. They, their dad drives a full-size truck that's like a tank. It ain't like your Prius or your little pickup truck. They drive the real deal. They provide all the things. And you know what we've decided? I've decided that I'm, I'm going to move in with them. And I'm going to call them dad. And I just think that family's better. If I heard that. You know how I'd feel? Jealous wrath. I'm jealous for my children. They're my treasured possession. I'd look at them and say, you're not going anywhere. You are riding in the back of that Prius until it dies. You are a part of this family. You are mine. I love you more than you could ever possibly imagine. You ain't going nowhere because you're my treasured possession. That's how God feels about us and then some. Feel that. Believe that, Christian. You're more valued than you could ever possibly understand. Your life was literally bought with the blood of God. You are his treasured possession. You need to hear that. Because what happens is, is that we, we, when we endure suffering, when we endure suffering, we question that. And we question the goodness of God. Like if God's really good and really does value me as a, as a treasured possession, then why is life so hard? Why do I feel so sad? Or why do I feel so alone? Or what? Fill in the blank. That's a longer discussion that sometimes you're not going to get the most satisfying answers to. But you're not alone. The Israelites felt that. I mean, they wandered in the wilderness through all types of trials, and they questioned the goodness of God, and God's trying to help them see and help us see. You don't understand how treasured you are, that our minds are so focused on this moment and the, and the, and the sufferings that feel great but pale in comparison to what await us. We are absolutely treasured and loved by God, and you need to believe that. And if you believe that, and if you walk in that, these next two descriptions are going to make a lot more sense when he says kingdom of priest and holy nation. Okay? Now, these are similar, similar language here, kingdom of priest and holy nation. All right? But there, there, there's, there's some differences here that is worth separating out to see the nuance of the language that's being used. So we're going to look at the kingdom of priests first. So priests are a specific group of people, okay? They're distinct from the rest of the people. We're going to see this later on in Exodus when God establishes this literal, the, the priesthood of God. And you're going to see these laws that show how they were different and distinct. That they, uh, they had to uh, follow all types of, of different rituals and uh, to, to, to be holy, to be pious. They had to even dress differently. Their dress was, I mean, later on in the New Testament, it gets used as a, a place of arrogance. But the original design of, of the dress and the difference was, y'all are distinct. You're distinct because you're called to a higher calling. They were called to, uh, to maintain holiness and to consecrate themselves, make themselves holy for different rituals. And the reason why is because the priesthood had special access to God. The priesthood had unique access that the rest of the people did not. That when the temple gets built, there are different parts of the temple that the rest of the people cannot enter. And, there, and, and there's only the priests could enter into that because they had devoted themselves to God and to this pursuit of holiness. And what we see coming out of that is not only for the end itself knowing God. It was so that with their special access, they might teach the people. They might teach the law. 
that they might be in charge of corporate worship, helping people bring their sacrifices to God, that they had special access to God to know him so that the people could know him. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests, is that we as Christians have special access to God. That, that we're called the priesthood of all believers now because we no longer need a priest between us and God. That we have Jesus, our great high priest, who gives us access to God the Father. That we can approach him in prayer and in worship at any moment. And with that special access, it's not just for our good. It's for the good of others. That we might know God and the overflow of knowing God and loving him might be poured out for the good of others. That's why in First Peter he says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see their, your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, on the day of visitation. So that the people can hear the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. A kingdom of priests proclaim who God is. That the invitation to God ultimately is flowing through them as teachers of the law and as those who facilitate worship. And in Christ, we have that message of who Jesus is. And we get to, as a kingdom of priests, proclaim who he is to the nations who need him. That the church, we say this every week. I don't know if you've heard this. That the church is plan A, not plan B. There it is. We say that every week in our closing. I just missed it. That the church is plan A. There is no plan B. It's the means by which God proclaims his gospel to the world because we are the kingdom of priests who give the invitation of the gospel to those who need him. So, second. Third is holy nation. He says in verse 6 of chapter 19, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First Peter, he says, a royal, a royal priesthood and a holy nation nation. Now, the word holiness gets a bad rap in our culture, okay? Like I caught a glimpse of the Grammys performance that was talking about unholiness, and I was like, good night. This is crazy. Also, you misunderstand holiness completely. I misunderstood holiness completely. When I was a lost teenager and rebellious, like I got around some people that were very self-righteous and judgmental. And, you know, I used to not be Baptist, and they were. And I thought Baptists were the worst. Because what I equated, I equated holiness with holier than thou. Holiness with self-righteousness. And I think largely when you use the term holiness, that's what people think. They think of self-righteousness. They, oh, you think you're better than me. That's not what holiness is at all. Holiness, quite simply, is seeking to be like our maker. It's seeking to be just like him. When he says holiness, that you've been set apart to be like your God. That's what the pursuit of holiness is. It's just trying to be like God. And in any other, listen, any other phase of life, any other example, if you, no one looks at a, at a, at a boy that, you know, who, loves his dad, and he looks up to his dad, and he wants to dress like his dad, and look like his dad, and talk like his dad. No one looks at that and says, oh, you just trying to be better than me? You just want to be like your dad? No one looks at a little girl who wants to be just like her mom, or a, or, or a student that wants to be just like their teacher, or a player that wants to be like their coach, and says anything negative about that. We all look at that and say, that's awesome, that's great, but when it comes to God, 
and say, oh, you, you think you're better than me. You must be self-righteous. And it's like, no. No, I, <laughs> holiness is not I'm better than you. That's Jesus is better. And I just want to be like him because he is better. And what he has to offer is better. And I trust him at his word that the God who saved me, who redeemed me and set me apart and gave me these commandments that show me what it means to live in life with God, that these things are actually truly better, that I'm going to trust what the scriptures teach on this over what my gut says. I'm going to trust what the scriptures teach on this over what the world says because what Jesus offers is better. And I want to be like my God. And the people of God had a unique opportunity to be a holy nation amongst all types of surrounding nations that did not know God. And we as Christians get to be a holy nation, not because we're great, but because he is. And his light gets to shine through us to people that desperately need to know God. That's what it means to be a holy nation. So, with these three different phrases, the Israelites were hearing a picture, this surround sound, every part of it. This is what it means to be the people of God. That you are a treasured possession. No longer the abused possession of Pharaoh, but you are a treasured possession. That you're no longer a kingdom of slaves, but you're a kingdom of priests. That you're no longer subject to the Egyptian rule and reign as that nation, you are a holy nation that belongs to the great I am. And with each of those descriptions, you have an essential, they're an essential part of a grander picture of what it means to be the people of God. And you need all three. I think all three descriptions to see your, to, to try to embody what it means to be the church, all three of those matter. So, Chet and I this week, uh, we're talking through this and, and we put together this Venn diagram. Um, one, because Venn diagrams are awesome. <laughs> they just are. Uh, but it's just a helpful tool to be able to actually see kind of what happens if you don't have all three of them. Now, if you're the kind of per- if you're cynical, you can try to poke holes in this, all right? That's nice. Or you can just kind of, every illustration can break down eventually. But we're going to look at this now, and you're going to have time in, in your groups this week and group content to actually work through this. So, Treasured possession, royal priesthood, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, okay? That's the three descriptions. Now, here's what happens if you just have one of these individually. Go to the next slide, please. So, if you just believe that you're a treasured possession, and you post up in that, that, that's what you believe the church is supposed to be, that ultimately you just believe that, well, just God is good, and he is. That's one part of it. God is good. But what can happen is, is if you just believe that God is good and you're not concerned with being a royal priesthood, an invitation to those who don't believe, you're not concerned with holiness, then ultimately what happens is is you just think God okays all of whatever we want to believe, whatever we want to live. That God's just gracious and he's good. And you get this nominal Christianity, this this Christianity that's a name only, that doesn't actually ever take sin seriously, doesn't reckon with what the, our sin cost us, that doesn't see a need to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that can go all, in all kinds of directions. It can go towards even universalism. It's just like, God's just going to be good to us. It's all going to work out in the end. And that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. If you just have this, not, we're not there yet. Go back. The big reveal's coming, you guys. All right, so if we just have kingdom of priests, royal priesthood, 
Then what we have is just do good, okay? It's just, you're doing a bunch of good. You're just concerned with being, uh, you know, an invitation and, and missional. And if you're just concerned with doing good, but you actually don't see the part of the gospel where God has grace towards us, if you don't see the calling to really this personal holiness to be like Christ, then what can happen is you really just have a bunch of good works that you reduce our faith down to really just kind of like a social gospel of just doing good and doing good and doing good. And ultimately, you don't have the essential parts of the gospel that tell us that God is graceful towards us and his mercy towards us, that he calls us to be different for a reason. And if you just have holy nation, and you understand what it means to be a Christian is to be a holy people, but you don't have these other two. You don't see the grace of our God. You don't see that he's called to make us missional, a people that bear the gospel. Then what you have ultimately is a holy huddle. That's where you get the self-righteousness. The people that are just like, oh, we're so great. We're so concerned with being good and being good and being good, but that's not the gospel. Now, what if you have two of these? Next slide, please. All right, so if you have two of these, if you see, yeah, we're a treasured possession. We believe that God is in his grace and his mercy. And we believe that, yes, like we're called to go and do and, and, and serve the poor and, and, and do good. But you're not concerned with holiness in any form and pursuing God and being like him. Then what you ultimately have is compromise. You won't see that, oh, like sin is real and we should put it to death. Goodness, one of, when I became a Christian... One of the most popular phrases at the time, it was like 15 years ago, and I think it still lingers a little bit, is we got to be relevant. we got to be relevant. I heard that over and over and over again. And the people that banged that drum, like the problem with the reason the church is dying in America is we're just, we're not relevant enough. Like they, they, hit, they hit that drum over and over again to the point of ad nauseum. And a lot of those people aren't even following Jesus anymore because they made compromise after compromise after compromise. And listen, we're... I don't know if you know this. I'm going to totally break your brain if you don't know this. Christians aren't cool to the world. We're not. We're weird. We are guided by a book that's thousands of years old. We're not relevant at all in the sense of what people might think today. And that's okay. You get to be distinct and different for a reason. You don't have to look like or be like the rest of the world. That's not how you make disciples of all nations. You're missing it if you don't have. No, we're actually called to look differently. And if you just have a royal priesthood, the invitation, and a holy nation, if it's just about doing good and being good, then what you have is moralism. I do to gain God. I do to, to be seen as good before God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we were dead in our sin and brokenness in our mess, and by his grace, he scoops us up and redeems us and sets us apart to be the people of God. You just have moralism. That's not the gospel. If you just have that you're a treasured possession, that God is good, and that you're a holy nation, that you're called to be like him, but you don't ever see the need to be a royal priesthood who proclaims the excellencies of him who calls us out of darkness into marvelous light, then you just have a retreat. You, I mean, you... you and I'll be honest, if we're going to air anywhere as our church, it's going to be in that category right there. That we, we, have, we love theology, we talk about God's grace and his mercy and the richness of his kindness and that we see a need in our groups. If you've been with our groups long enough, we love each other and we don't want each other to live in sin. So we hold each other accountable and correct one another and point us to Christ. But the one thing we might be lacking is evangelism and being the people that take the invitation to the world. You need all three. 
And if you have all three of them, that, that center sweet spot, if you have all three of them, then you're never going to see this coming. We get to be a gospel-centered community on mission. Boom! Nailed it. That's it, but it's true. It's true. We talk about that all the time, that we believe the gospel, that God's grace and his mercy claims us and redeems us because of what he did on the cross and the empty tomb, and it sets us apart to be a holy nation and a people that know him, that love him, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light so that the world might taste and see that the Lord is good and take refuge in him. That's the calling of what it means to be a Christian, and that's the calling of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the people of God were called to be thousands of years ago in Israel, and that's what we're called to be now. And that calling is beautiful, and it is good, and it is wonderful. And we get to press into that together as a church. The band's going to come up, and we're just going to worship and sing one last song as the church that's seeking to be these three descriptions. So let me very clearly this morning need to hear that God loves you, that he sees you as a treasured possession, that he does want you, that he does desire you, that he does want you to live in relationship with him. And some of you may not know our God. And the invitation is there, that you don't have to clean yourself up, you don't have to be good to gain him, that you get to trust in the finished work of Jesus, that he died for our sins, and that he rose to give us new life in him. And you get to experience what it means to be a treasured possession. Some of you need to feel the correction that we are called to be a holy nation. We are called to be different for a reason. That distinctness and that separateness does not make us better but it does help us enjoy God in newer and beautiful, better ways. And that if we do that, we do get to be a kingdom of priests. And you got friends and neighbors and coworkers that need Christ, that don't know him. That's our surrounding nations. They don't know him. And if you lean into and press into who God calls us to be, that maybe just might they might get to know him by the way that you live and the gospel that you proclaim. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us really own what it means to be the people of God, that you would help us see what it means to be a treasure possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You would see this as unbelievably beautiful and good. And if there's anyone here that does not even begin to know where to start, They don't know what it means to be your treasure possession. I pray that right now they would see that the work that you did for them 2,000 years ago and the offering that is there for them right now, that they would take it. And that the rest of us who are sinners in desperate need of a Savior for daily growth and wisdom and strength and insight, as you mold us and conform us into your image, may you make us be the holy people that bear the gospel to a world that needs it in Jesus' name. Amen.